I am Planta on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Jeff Vandermeer joins me now. The acclaimed author has just published a new novel, Hummingbird Salamander. It is a speculative thriller involving a dark conspiracy, endangered species, wildlife trafficking, and the end of the world. It is his long-awaited new novel following the success of his Southern Reach trilogy, which comprised of Annihilation, that book was made into the uh, 2018 film, Authority, and Acceptance. I'll ask Jeff about the characters in the book, about the very near future we might encounter, as well as the urgency around us, what with environmental catastrophe, climate change, and mass extinction. The book evokes paranoia and claustrophobia, as well as the Pacific Northwest. I'll ask Mr. Vandermeer about this part of the world and how familiar he is with the west coast of the United States. And um, I'll ask him about his home in Tallahassee, Florida, where he joined me from last week. Jeff Vandermeer is an acclaimed and best-selling author, and his book, Born, was added to the National Endowment of the Arts' prestigious Big Reads program. His work has been compared to Jorge Luis Borges, Franz Kafka, and Henry David Thoreau. This new book has been optioned by Netflix. It is published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Jeff Vandermeer. Mr. Vandermeer, good morning. Uh, and good afternoon from Tallahassee. It's good to be here. Nice to talk to you. Um, th- this book, uh, Hummingbird Salamander, is set in the Pacific Northwest. Um, is this a part of the world that you're familiar with? It is, actually. Um, and it kind of, <laughs> this is kind of maybe a cliche, but uh, Anne and I, my wife, uh, had our honeymoon on Vancouver Island ah. uh, many years ago. And ever since, we've been, we kind of fell in love with the Pacific Northwest and uh, have, British, have visited British Columbia quite a bit. And then also uh, the coast of California and Oregon and Washington uh, is also a favorite. So I'd, I'd say we've been there more, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've been there like 12, 15 times and and, uh, you know, this book, I actually did research by driving down the coast uh, in 2019 in December, uh-huh. kind of method acting, being the character <laughs> who's on the run. So You, you capture so much of, of what it's like. I'm, I'm in Vancouver, but it's the same part of the world, essentially, um, of, of what it's like. Um, um, oh, thanks. It, it, it's such a wonderful uh, evocation of, say, the wilderness and and. Uh, what it means to a lot i'm not an outdoorsy person but what it means for a lot of people that that are from here or that uh, live elsewhere and long for it um the um the journey that jane is on um as the book starts um what happens i guess i mean without spoiling things i've only read part of the book because i I have the terrible habit of giving away things so um i'll let you tell us i'll let you tell us as much as you'd like say Right. Well, um, you know, Jane is a security analyst somewhere in a, in a city in, in the Northwest, and, and, you know, she won't tell you her real name uh-huh. out of really security reasons, she thinks. And then also you don't know what city, but it, you, you probably you get this probably in the, the Washington, Oregon area. And uh, she one day she receives a, a gift of sorts, a, a hummingbird in a storage unit. It's taxidermied. It's uh, an extinct type of hummingbird. In theory, it's actually kind of contraband for her to even have it. Uh-huh. It's been given to her by a, a dead woman. Uh, a woman who died the month before, uh, and a woman that Jane doesn't know, named Sylvina, who's either a eco terrorist or eco uh, activist, depending on your your point of view or, or what news stories you read. And so she uh, she doesn't seem she doesn't realize, and I don't think she could, that just by taking the hummingbird out of the storage unit, uh, she kind of trips a wire with certain parties and is is immediately kind of down a rabbit hole of surveillance and and uh, antagonists that. 
that are very interested in uh, Sylvina, even though she's dead, and very interested in what Jane intends to do in terms of finding the hummingbird that, that is also in Sylvina's note, uh, since uh, it's not in the storage unit. And so the more that Jane explores this mystery of who this woman was and why she has this taxidermy, the more stuck in she gets and the more powerful enemies kind of appear on the horizon. Until by the time she wants to get out, she can't. Uh, and that's probably the place to stop because beyond that is yeah. a lot of spoilers. So, so, so the, the, the fascinating thing is, as I'm reading the book is, is um, how very quickly I'm, I'm uh, moved or, or haunted, might be the better word, but by Jane's voice, especially when, when she asks uh, uh, us questions or um, uh, uh, posits things about where we're headed or what we might do. Um, does a similar voice, does that speak to you before or even during the, the writing of a book like this? It, it does, and, you know, in, in a way you have to, again, kind of method act a, char- a character, um, and in this case especially one who is writing from a certain point in the future and looking back. And so the text is not just suffused with the, the, um, the, what's happening in the present, present moment, but the, the ghosts of the future, <laughs> the yeah. things that Jane knows that we don't know yet. Uh, so I really wanted that to suffuse it, and so I did use a kind of a modified second person from time to time at the end of sections to kind of bring the reader into that and to kind of like, not foreshadow, but it's definitely the fact that, 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 that Jane is, 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 is looking back on this and layering in things uh, that the reader can't know yet. So, so I'm I'm a pr- pretty shallow thinker, um, and and so I, you know, I, I'm probably one of these people that think that mass extinctions, um, you know, they're too far away or even improbable. But but as I'm reading your book, it, it is pretty close, isn't it? It is. I mean, we're we're down to uh, by some estimates, fifty uh, percent of the, the the wildlife that we had in the 1970s, and of course that also means a lot of habitat loss and everything else. So. We are definitely in the throes of a, a period where if we don't uh, do a better job of, of uh, protecting habitat uh, and also investing in green technology, we'll be in, in, in really serious trouble. And the thing is that there's no like uh, point of no return because it's all a point of no return. We're going to lose something. The question is whether we fight hard enough and, and smart enough uh, to save as much as possible. So, so when you write a when you write a novel, especially like Hummingbird Salamander, um, do do you write um, for uh, as much from a place of hope as say a place of fear? I think they're kind of bound up together. I mean, you know, just as a, a pragmatist in in real life as opposed to the life of fiction, you know, to, to me the the despair comes from and the horror comes from not facing the actual data and, and not uh, enacting policies that actually, actually make sense for what we're facing. So that's where the hopelessness comes from. It's not the facing of the facts, it's from not facing the facts. But I also think that there's a lot of the beauty of the world conveyed by the novel. I mean, the fact that Jane yeah. kind of knows Sylvina in part through the fact that Sylvina is so attached to the particular type of hummingbird that she's received from the storage unit and a particular type of salamander, and they, they both have unique life stories, you know, one that includes an incredibly long migration, you know, I think that she comes to see something of the beauty of the world that she hadn't realized before. And the, the fact is, even if the two, uh, you know, made-up creatures in, in the novel, which were actually created by a biologist named Dr. Megan Brown for me, um, you know, even if they're extinct, 
uh, you know, there's tons of, of wildlife and, and organisms that are alive, and, and our our future, I think, is actually really pretty much bound to theirs. Uh, so we have to be we have to take better care care of them. Uh, I've well. read uh, other interviews that you've given, um, not just for this book, but others. Mm-hmm. And um, you, you're always quick to point out, you know, the beauty of the natural world around us, and and that's something you know um, that we lose sight of. And, and I wonder why we do that. Well, I mean, you know, we all have lives, we all have jobs, we all have all this stuff that we have to do, and then we have the fact that uh, there's a lot of foundational assumptions that we all have taken in, you know, that that get in the way of seeing seeing the world. Uh, you know, even to the point now of like, if you Google very common urban wildlife, you're more likely to get a pest control ad than you are to get actual information about that animal that's not propaganda, right? Yeah, so yeah. so automatically that animal's like on the wrong foot with, with somebody who sees that potentially. Um, so so we have a lot of these things and filters in front of us that, that sometimes don't let us see the beauty of just the stuff that's right around us, too. Yeah. yeah. It, 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 as I'm reading the book, the, you, you evoke as well, not just the beauty, obviously, but, but I mean the, the sense of paranoia and claustrophobia that uh, that Jane goes through, and and I found that um, uh, isolating. I guess we've we've all been isolated the past year or so in in, in small and big ways. Um, but but this book was probably written before COVID, right? Um, well, I mean, I think that there's been a growing sense of paranoia in 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 this country ever since Trump was elected. To be sure, absolutely honest, yeah. and so you know, uh, it, it's created this situation where, where paranoia, a healthy dose of paranoia, the right balance of paranoia uh, and non-paranoia kind of gets you through the day in terms of figuring out even what's real and what isn't. Uh, so that was already going to be built in there, but I did finish up the book during the beginning of the pandemic, which just kind of added to that isolationist kind of feel and that, that paranoia you're talking about. And I think Jane, the more she gets stuck in into this this mystery that's really you know almost too deep for her to solve, she does become more paranoid, and in some ways, it is a, a survival instinct. Uh, you know, be be be, be sus- everyone be suspect, <laughs> just because you know some of them are. But um, but I think it does mirror something in the real world where we have all this incoming information. And we're not always sure how truthful all of it is or where it's coming from exactly. Is there a relationship, do you think, between say those that that, that um, propagate or buy into conspiracy theories and and um, Say um, the, the realm of, of science fiction or speculative fiction. I mean, does the uh, does uh, say fiction itself understand the the, the latter? I don't know. I mean, I, I just think it depends on the individual. I mean, I, I would say that I, I do see a, a, a context sometimes. I did have a friend who was fairly deeply religious in a way that that um, was almost cult like, and uh-huh. when he deprogrammed himself. He found himself behaving in the same cult-like way about other issues. <laughs> mm. Like it's very hard to actually deprogram yourself from that impulse. Um, and uh, I think the other thing is that the internet makes it incredibly easy because it's just such a powerful persuader. And again, we don't always see the underlying code, so to speak, of where something's coming from. Uh, that it's it's quite easy to get taken in. Sometimes in harmless ways, and sometimes in ways that lead to somebody basically being taken over by a mind virus and you just don't recognize them anymore yeah i guess we all have to be mistrustful of authority but it, but there is as you mentioned uh, in another context a moment ago there, there needs to be a balance doesn't it isn't yeah. There, yeah. yeah no absolutely and i mean i even found this during the pandemic where i was having i realized i was having conversations in my head with with people like neighbors 
that were very not helpful. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so yeah, I was, yeah. I was, I was, I was taking positions on on things with regard to the neighborhood for people without ever having talked to them about something. And, and as soon as I realized that, then I started monitoring myself every day, thinking this isolation is actually really, you know, in addition to everything that's coming at you about the elections, about the pandemic, you also have to be aware that you can get into loops. Uh, we are not really seeing the world truly. So, so absolutely, I, that, that, that's true. We all have to to be wary of that. And it's a shame that it, it's just so potent right now that, yeah. that, that it's a thing that you have to be aware of. In, in this pandemic year, um, has anything surprised you at all about the way we've, we've say, conducted ourselves or, or, or the way it's turned out even? Um, well, I mean, I guess I didn't really expect that there would be anti-mask protests. Um, I, I I expected that there would be some further logic that wasn't just like, like here in our county, I think we're pretty logical about the process even of giving out the vaccine, but mm-hmm. statewide, not at all. So I guess some of those things kind of surprised me. Um, I guess I, I'm a little bit um, unsure of whether we've kind of learned anything from it. I mean, here in, in our county, in our city, we're still planning on going ahead with like $40 million for a convention center that's probably just going to be a massive, massive mausoleum to ambition. Mm-hmm. Um, and other projects that I would think that this would be a wake-up call, because this really is part and parcel of the climate crisis. So yeah. if, if, if this can't wake us up to the fact that there's going to be waves of things like this, in other contexts, and that we need to start becoming resilient, and I, that I don't know what will, because because this was the first you know big test in a way of something invisible that affects you, or it's seemingly invisible for a long time, and and how can you deal with that abstract and 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 come to policy decisions that actually make sense for the long term? So we'll see. Yeah, that's a frustrating thing, even for, from from you know this vantage point, if you will, um, that it, it's a, a push to get to normal or get yeah. back to where we were, not yeah. that this has changed us, a, you know, a great deal. Yeah, and of course, I mean, on the other hand, there's been a lot of coming together. It just hasn't yeah. been necessarily at the government level. I mean, we have a great Facebook group in town that tells us which establishments aren't allow, are, are allowing people to not wear masks, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but nothing from you know the, the government. Yeah. Um, do you write with an audience in mind, Jeff? I mean, as I was reading the book, I, I, I sort of worried that, that you'd be preaching to the choir, if you will. You know, I, it it, um, it seems my audience seems to shift from book to book because I, I um, write in such different modes. So it's hard for me to tell who my reader is going to be. I usually assume that I'm going to lose some readers and pick up some readers. Uh, and, and so I think it's the same case here. And, and I don't know about preaching to the choir. I don't really... I really think a climate change denier is beyond my ability to deprogram. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do think um, that somebody who thinks we've got another 50 years before all the all of this comes back to roost is is somebody I can maybe convince uh, to take more immediate action, if that makes any sense. Uh, but then also, a novel is not an essay. You know, it's doing all these other things as well. You know, I, I, I go back and forth on whether fiction can convince or not, but. At the same time, as a novelist, I have to, I feel like I have to, or my subconscious also feels like it has to kind of engage with what's going on, you know. Has um, what's happened in the, in the wider world, has that always, say, motivated or given your work urgency over the years? I think so. I mean, my very first novel, Venice Underground, was basically a future where people lived in walled cities and the rest of the world was just desert. Uh, you know, so so this is something I've been grappling with for for a while on and off, and 
it just kind of came into very sharp focus with Annihilation because the the high profile of that with the movie and everything meant I was getting a lot of invites to speak at like environmental science departments and mm-hmm. and and part of that is you begin to to examine your own environmental advocacy and and what you're doing and what maybe your blind spots are but it also means you come into contact with a lot of other influences so I had a lot of conversations at like Rice University in Houston and elsewhere um, that influence the fiction and it just kind of becomes again this this feedback loop in a good way where the subconscious just keeps receiving information and it keeps coming out as something environmental. Jeff, you told the Globe and Mail in, 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 here in Canada uh, um, that the adaptation of Annihilation uh, was different. The experience of that was different than what you were expecting. Now, I understand um, this new book uh, will be adapted. How involved are you in, in, with that project? Well, I guess one, one good thing is that the Annihilation process you know, allowed me to see what the process is, you know. <laughs> I had no experience at all with, with that process. And so now it's much easier for me to contribute in a meaningful way and maybe make sure that things that I think are important, like about the environment, are still in the adaptations. Like I think AMC is doing a TV series of Born and then Hummingbird Sound Matters with Netflix, and I will be a creative consultant with both of those. And, and, and my goal is, in all things, you know, especially when it's basically a collaboration, mm-hmm. you know, is that the person who's mainly creating the TV series or the movie has the creative freedom they need, but that I have what I think of as a certain fidelity to the material without stepping on their toes. And, and um, because you, you evoke Jane so well, um, I'm not going to ask you who, who you'd cast, but uh, in terms of, of, of what she looks like or in terms of how she is, um, is that something that, that um, I mean, you must have um, re- really um, uh, felt uh, an affection even towards her that that's the way you evoked her in the book um, yeah no absolutely i thought i mean uh, she's very contradictory in, in interesting ways i think and she's also not always the most relatable person in what she does at the same time i think she has a real integrity to herself and the physicality that i found interesting yeah. and um it would it would i don't know you know how exactly that translates into a movie except it needs to you know, translate it in, in, in a way that's comparable. Uh, but, yeah, I did. I did have a sympathy for her. I mean, I, I think that the thing that happens, too, is that we often mistake expertise for as a, as a bomb for all situations. And, you know, Jane is the security expert, and she has surveillance, inf- uh, you know, knowledge and whatnot, and yet she still gets caught up in this because she's got the wrong skill set for the situation. And this happens to a lot of us. Uh, in the wrong context, we're just we're just not as useful as we think we would be, and, and I find that compelling as well. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm agnostic as to whether I like her or not, but I just find her in, in, incredibly fascinating as I'm reading the book, and and I want to know more about her. Um, yeah, well, I mean that's something too is that you know even with like annihilation and the biologist in in, in that book, I, I think one part of the discovery of the journey is the discovery of Jane in addition to the in addition to the plot so i hope readers are patient for that yeah yeah um i've also in in reading up on you um have been fascinated by um the space around your home there in Tallahassee um you've uh, talked about rewilding it and in terms of of uh, say cultivating habitat space for for species for for uh, plants as well what is it i mean how much of your day do you spend say working on on where you live well um as i've gotten older as a novelist i've gotten incredibly lazy uh, so i don't <laughs> write as much i try to write as little as possible you know <laughs> in terms of yeah. draft 
stuff. So sure. that helps. Yeah. I usually write for maybe three, uh, maybe four hours in the morning, and then the afternoon is usually devoted to the yard, you know, so maybe five or six hours uh, on a good day. But, you know, that's also writing time in a way, because if I'm living in the moment like that, that's when ideas uh, and new inspiration come to me. Uh, so it's kind of like a, a refresh. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a huge project. It's a half acre, but it's on this little trough of a ravine, wooded ravine between houses. So it feels like a lot more, uh, and I have to contend with a lot more because um, I'm the only one really down in the ravine. The neighbors are, you know, behind their fences up and above. Our, our house just happens to kind of lean into it, uh, and you know, fighting invasive plants, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but also a lot of joy. Like the other day, when it rained, I went out and there was a box turtle having a bath in the creek. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it was a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah. I guess chores, as we can all relate, they never end, do they? No, they don't. And I mean, that is one thing that wears on you. It's almost like uh, Area X is encroaching from annihilation because the invasive plants will will never stop growing mm-hmm. <laughs> as much as I weed them out. Do, 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 uh, a lot of us have started gardening in terms of, mm-hmm. of say, planting for food. Do, do, do you do yeah. any of that, say? No, and I have mixed feelings about uh, planting for food that's on a hobbyist uh, level only because of these cultural things that people bring in. So, you know, mm-hmm. you see someone quite happy to let the rabbit alone in their yard until they start wanting a carrot uh <laughs> they've started yeah, growing yeah. that quite frankly is 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 just like a couple carrots it's not gonna it's not actually sustenance farming um and so suddenly you know you get this idea of something being a pest that wasn't a pest before and um and that irks me a bit a, a bit so i i you know for me personally and i have nothing against gardeners who plant vegetables but i just go ahead and, and assume everything in the yard is for the wildlife mm, that's a, a marvelous way to look at it you know because we always complain about you know little things or, or even big things that come in um and and um it's it, less it, stressful yeah, and it's less work in a indeed. way you're not working against the landscape as much so i'm enjoying this book a great deal i can't wait to finish it um congratulations on it and and, and good luck with it i so appreciate your time today oh thanks thanks a lot for having me on the book is called Hummingbird Salamander. It is published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Its author, Jeff Vandermeer, join me on the line from Tallahassee, Florida, in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plantev.